makes you feel he's a cool exec with a heart of steel. And Iron Man, all jets of place, I've been broadcasting on this podcast for the last two weeks in the city of Kitchener, Ontario, which is about an hour from Toronto. I've been here just for a little while helping with some family matters. And there comes a time in every youngish Torontonian's life when they start thinking, well, what does my future look like? Am I going to live in Toronto, an increasingly expensive city, a city where it's very hard to afford to buy any property, you know, like like what what if I start looking at some of the suburbs or some of the some of the neighboring cities? And my family has been in Kitchener for about 15 years ever since I graduated high school and I can tell you that this city has been ruined for me. This is, you know, and and I'm I'm allowed to say this cuz I basically am a Kitchenerite at this point. You have you have Kitchener privilege. Exactly. Kitchener's in my blood. And so don't no disrespect to Kitchener Waterloo listeners. I know we have at least a few. <laughs> uh, I'm just saying that this is a city that has become associated in my mind with traumatic periods and way station periods. It's a city that I have come to associate with being unemployed, with my childhood home being sold, and all of a sudden I'm in a new city. It's a city that I've come to associate with like the deaths of relatives. This is a problem. <laughs> you know, it's funny, you're bringing this up for other reasons, but uh, we are recording this on American Thanksgiving, and I feel like that sentiment is probably one that resonates for quite a lot of people. <laughs> quite a lot of our American listeners who, you know, uh, have undertaken the annual ritual of flying from their coastal bastions um, into the hinterland <laughs> and presumably briefed with, you know, a dozen or so of those listicles that are like 10 tactics for rhetorically destroying your conservative family members over Turkey or whatever. I feel like I saw less of those this year, uh, to be fair. And I wondered if that's because there's a Democrat in the White House. Yeah, I, th I think you hit the nail on the head. Exactly. The, the industry for those articles has temporarily dried up, although I suspect that sooner rather than later, we'll be seeing a revival of them. <laughs> Anyway, one more thing I'll just say about Kitchener, and th this will sound like a slam on the city, but any listeners from the city, I think will wholeheartedly agree with me. Very ugly city, not aesthetically beautiful. I'm constantly driving in this city and seeing no trees. I would like to see a tree somewhere. Write in, folks. Kitchener listeners, write in and tell me where I can find a tree. You know, well, this is maybe the second or third time uh, you've brought up Kitchener-Waterloo uh, in recent episodes. And I do think it's important to emphasize that most of our listeners really have no idea where it is or really what it is. So perhaps you should provide a little more background. I mean, you keep joking about our listeners in Kitchener-Waterloo, and I'm sure there are like six of them. But since we have many more listeners in places like Brooklyn and Portland and uh, Dublin, uh, I'm guessing that people in those cities don't uh, don't know about uh, KW. Well, I'm certain that all of those cities have their equivalent. It's about an hour south of Toronto. It's not south of Toronto. There's nothing south of Toronto. South of Toronto is the lake, dude. Okay, it's southwest. Okay, it's not southwest. south of Toronto. <laughs> it's more south than north. I mean, the, Luke, there are two directions. There are only two directions, south and north. <laughs> A man as worldly as you should understand that. Well, I asked Will to put uh, Kitchener-Waterloo in geographic context for listeners, and it sounds like uh, he needs to master a compass uh, and just like the idea of direction 
questions uh, before he's qualified to do that. Don't listen to this bastard. I'm the one who's from Kitchener, I can tell you. So it's an hour south of Toronto. And it's kind of like, you know, in the British office, uh, Slough. <laughs> it's, it's kind of like that. That scene where Ricky Gervais is reciting the poem about Slough. Yeah, come friendly bombs and fall on Slough. It is not fit for humans now. That resonates very strongly with me whenever I'm in Kitchener. And again, only I'm allowed to make fun of Kitchener. Only people from Ontario are allowed to make fun of Kitchener. I don't want to hear any Americans coming at me saying, Ooh, Kitchener sounds really bad. No, it's not, you, you bastards. Anyway, just a little historical information. Kitchener used to be Berlin, Ontario, but it changed sometime in the 1910s for reasons you you might understand. <laughs> and uh, it's the home of Canada's Oktoberfest. Yeah, what else do people need to know about Kitchener? Well, it's a major tech corridor, right? It uh, has the headquarters of Research in Motion, which uh, makes Blackberry, or maybe I should use the past tense. Do people still have Blackberries? Do they still make those? Uh, so I'm not positive about that, but what I do know is that Blackberry Blackberry's presence here really did turn Kitchener-Waterloo into, yeah, like the Canadian tech hub. I mean, Stephen Hawking came here for a little while. That's how big this place was. I should emphasize, though, that's the Waterloo part of Kitchener-Waterloo, and I identify as a native Kitchenerite. So, you know, you, you may as well be talking about frickin' Paris, as far as I'm concerned, talking about Waterloo. Well, it is it is kind of an interesting place because, uh, I mean, it's it's actually technically the Tri-Cities, right? It's Kitchener-Waterloo-Cambridge, although I think it's only Kitchener mm-hmm. and Waterloo that are amalgamated. But, I mean, that's interesting. So do the different towns, which are, I mean, they share borders, but in the case of Kitchener-Waterloo, at least, I mean, you know, you literally like cross the street and you're in the other one. I mean, do they have a fierce sense of independence, each of these places? I mean, they certainly do. And what I'll tell you is that as you cross the border into Waterloo, it's a little bit like when Dorothy and the Tin Man and the Scarecrow go out of the forest and then all of a sudden they see the Emerald City. (laughs) It has that kind of vibe. (laughs) I thought you were going to say something else. I thought it was going to be like when Barton Milhouse and the gang cross over into Shelbyville and then, you know, they just meet themselves, but like slightly different versions like slightly more sinister versions of themselves (laughs) it definitely seems to me that there is kitchener pride and waterloo pride uh certainly waterloo is the more affluent area i imagine that had i gone to grade school i would have had certain of those prejudices ingrained in me much more deeply just as going to school in etobicoke at uh, martin grove we were taught to hate and fear the rich few kids. Well, had you gone to grade school, you might have also learned the difference between South and West, which uh, seems to still elude you today. I mean, I'm willing to concede maybe it's Southwest, but as I emphasized, there are two directions, North and South, and that's all I want to hear about. South of Toronto is just the lake, bro. Listeners, write in. Tell me that I'm right. Tell me that I'm right. Yeah, I, I rest my case. Well, I'll tell you something I was working on this week. I came across a column in The Guardian with the headline, I'm a therapist to the super rich. They're as miserable as succession makes out. Um, now, this is the kind of thing that, you know, in a clickbait economy, you know, what, whatever editor came up with this, you know, it's genius because, of course, you know, let a thousand quote tweets bloom. The response was just a whole bunch of people, you know, disavowing any sympathy for the super rich or whatever. But if you actually read the piece, I mean, I, I found it pretty interesting. It's by a psychotherapist named Clay Cock who uh, by chance fell into a career treating ultra wealthy individuals. And um, what what he finds overwhelmingly is that they're pretty miserable. Um, And they're miserable at all kinds of things you wouldn't quite expect. 
sent me down a, a bit of a rabbit hole. I'm quite interested in the, the inner lives of extremely rich people. And, and you know, he doesn't really specify uh, how rich these clients are, but I think it's safe to assume, you know, these aren't people that are like making a million dollars a year. These are incredibly rich people, you know, multimillionaires many times over, uh, billionaires possibly as well. And yeah, a lot of them are quite unhappy. A lot of them report problems being effective parents. You know, there's research I found elsewhere which suggests that a, a lot of extremely rich people actually feel a very fierce kind of status anxiety because, you know, when you become extremely rich, in many cases, the only other people you're going to know are people who are kind of like in the same socioeconomic orbit as you. A lot of anxiety that can come out of that and something that uh, the psychotherapist said, which I found particularly interesting um, and which I guess is not really surprising, is that a lot of uh, exorbitantly rich people find it very difficult to trust people um, because a lot of their... Their relationships are kind of transactional, they're instrumental, you know, they come through business partnerships and, you know, kind of these uh, alliances and things like that. Uh, I haven't seen Succession, but sounds like it's good, sounds like I should see it, but I gather the plot, or at least part of the plot, revolves around, you know, children competing for who's going to inherit the family fortune, something like that. Forgive me if I'm getting it wrong, I haven't seen the show. But you can imagine just all these ways that proximity to a lot of wealth would actually corrode the kinds of uh, bonds that most of us are, are able to form. And of course, the takeaway here isn't that, you know, we should feel more sympathetic to extremely rich people or something. You know, I'm obviously I'm always going to be more sympathetic to people with real problems. Yeah, I, I just want to say that I'm often unhappy too, you know, so uh, <laughs> I, I, I would like I, I wouldn't mind being unhappy with 20 million dollars. I think I'd like to give it a try. <laughs> I mean, you know, there's there's that common thing that's said about uh, how a lot of CEOs and, and ultra wealthy people are just uh, are just psychopaths, sociopaths. And I was able to find one estimate from John Ronson, who's that journalist that wrote the uh, So You've Been Cancelled thing. Yeah, yeah, that's right. The So You've Been Cancelled book. And Ronson does indeed estimate that instances of uh, psychopathy are four times higher among CEOs than among the general population. But the thing is, Four times higher is still, I mean, we're still talking about low single digits here. Um, so plenty of extremely rich people are not actually psychopaths. And so, you know, in, in many cases, I think, you know, have to engage in a pretty elaborate psychological tug of war, you know, not to feel tremendous kind of guilt and shame and, and other kinds of very human things. I mean, this is something that the uh, psychotherapist who wrote this Guardian article says, uh, he wrote, money is awkward to talk about. Money is wrapped up in guilt, shame and fear. And again, you know, I think the thing that's really interesting here is, you know, and again, I think what's really interesting here is less some cliche about money can't buy happiness or something like that. I feel like that's a pretty uh, self-serving cliche. And it's something you hear a lot from rich people. I mean, it's pretty hard to be happy without a roof over your head and, you know, three square meals a day and at least a few luxuries. And all those things are pretty difficult to, to get unless you have money. But I think what's really interesting here is the lesson that the rich, like everybody else under capitalism, you know, they're not oppressed by capitalism, but they're certainly captive to it just in the same way that everyone else is. This isn't true, I think, of elites in previous centuries, right? Like if you're a member of like the landed gentry somewhere in Europe in the, I don't know, 17th century, before any of the bourgeois revolutions have, have started, your position's probably pretty secure. I mean, a lot more secure, you know, than a lot of uh, even extremely well-off people today. I want to quote from something written by Vivek Chibber in an essay he did for Catalyst, which I think uh, encapsulates the plight or station of even the extremely rich in a world where the logic of capitalism saturates basically everything. I think this is the real point here. Chibber writes, 
Simply surviving the competitive battle thus forces the capitalist to prioritize the qualities associated with the entrepreneurial spirit. Whatever his prior socialization might have been, he quickly learns that he will have to conform to the rules attached to the location or his establishment will be driven under. It is a remarkable property of the modern class structure that any significant deviation by a capitalist from the logic of market competitiveness shows up as a cost in some way. A refusal to dump toxic sludge manifests as a loss in market share to those who will. A commitment to use safer but more expensive inputs shows up as a rise in unit costs and so on. Capitalists thus feel an enormous pressure to adjust their normative orientation, their values, goals, ethics, etc., to the social structure in which they're embedded, not vice versa. The moral codes that are encouraged are those that help the bottom line. And so just extrapolating from what this psychotherapist Clay Cockrell says in his article, you know, and without making uh, some kind of trite argument about how, well, all people are fundamentally good, even the, even the extremely rich. I do think there's a bit of a lesson here that being as wealthy as some people now are and exercising the kind of daily power over other people's lives that they do, there is something about that that contorts your soul unless you happen to literally be Patrick Bateman or someone like that. <laughs> One could say his soul was a little bit distorted. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, maybe the lesson here is that when we finally overthrow capitalism, the extremely rich, as a bonus, won't have to spend so much time talking to their therapists. Well, what if I told you that there is a good billionaire out there, a socially conscious one, and his name is Tony Stark. He is the protagonist of 2008's trend-setting superhero film, Iron Man. What are you building, Stark? I'm working on something big. I can fly. I just finally know what I have to do. I can't believe we're actually doing this for the podcast. I mean, when you suggested it, it felt a little embarrassing. I mean, I'd never seen Iron Man, but I thought, okay, we're going to watch a superhero movie. It's from 2008. And I mean, what's the takeaway going to be? It's like, you know, it's going to be the same as like a, watching any Christopher Nolan Batman movie. You know, it's like the same as watching The Dark Knight, where it's just like, oh yeah, this is a movie that's cryptically about the war on terror or something like that. Well, it turns out that uh, my embarrassment was unfounded uh, because this is a perfect movie to discuss for the podcast. Absolutely nothing cryptic about it. Uh, it's about the war on terror. <laughs> it's about the war on terror. And uh, as I've said recently on the show, you know, on this program, we like our ideology pure and uncut. And boy, did this film ever serve us up uh, several crystalline lines of uh, pure ideology. Yeah, I wanted to talk about this movie for a few reasons. First of all, I just wanted to revisit it. I haven't seen it since opening day 2008. I'm kind of amazed you somehow missed it. Well, I used to be more of a snob about movies like this. Like back when I was sort of 18 or 19, I'd be like, I don't need to see that. Like, you know, dumb superhero movie. Like I remember hating The Dark Knight when I saw it in theaters and I kind of hated how much everybody was buzzing about it. And then I don't know, I sort of mellowed a bit and I was like, ah, oh, let people have their fun, you know? And then uh, watching this movie again now, I think, no, I kind of had it right when I was 17 or 18. The, the only circumstances in which I would ever want to watch this is to make content out of it, which is of course what we're doing. Well, a couple of weeks ago, we were batting around things that we could talk about. And one of us brought up the Dark Knight. In fact, I think it was me 
and my case was, you know, we have to watch a movie. Why not watch one that's probably at least going to be a little entertaining? And we decided not to because it was just too embarrassing to do an episode on The Dark Knight at this late date. But I was interested in this one because I remembered this one. I correctly, I think, remembered this one as being a liberal reactionary superhero (laughs) movie, which makes it more interesting. And then just on another level, I kind of wanted to watch this again just because it's the first Marvel movie. And the last 15 years have been so heavily dominated by the Marvel Cinematic Universe and its imitators. I wanted to go back and just look at one and see what was it like when this was just a movie? What did it look like when this was just perceived as a normal run-of-the-mill movie and not as part of this massive ecosystem that you have to keep up on? Well, and I suppose also, you know, as, as a movie that is a standalone thing where you're not expected to do sort of 15 hours of homework before you watch it in order to understand the dense and convoluted lore of the whole thing. Yeah, and I kind of thought that maybe this would be fun. Like, I kind of thought that I might unironically like this, believe it or not, because my memory of it, which, you know, was pretty vague, was, oh, yeah, it's got Robert Downey Jr. kind of at the height of his stardom. And he's he's kind of charming, right? He's charismatic. And Robert Downey Jr., 15 years too old for this role, like rocking. <laughs> you know, I'm just imagining listicles in 2008 that are about, you know, like the diet that he did to get in shape for this movie. And then it's just like went to the gym 25 minutes a day and did a couple of setups. Ate a few slices of cake, no vegetables, you know. <laughs> I, I have to admit, I, I hate to disappoint our listeners. I don't want to sound like a snob, but I did not enjoy revisiting this movie. I didn't like it markedly more or less than any of the 20 subsequent Marvel movies that I paid to see in a theater. <laughs> I, I've seen most of them. I've kind of stopped in more recent years, but I kept up with it for a while. I think there's a common perception that this is one of the good ones. And, you know, I was watching it looking for something that I would like, and I I couldn't find it. Well, I did not enjoy watching it either. But doing this podcast for so long has kind of changed the way I watch a movie like this. Because you're looking for stuff to talk about. You're looking for that pure ideology. You're looking for those like money shot moments. And this movie is packed with money shot moments. That's right. I mean, I, I sat down and I put on, you know, my Michael and Us trademarked They Live goggles. And, uh, you know, I started watching this movie and I mean, within 15 or 20 minutes, I was just, I had a giant grin on my face. I was getting excited. I I was thinking, God, I can't wait to talk about this movie. There's so much here. So as mentioned earlier, our hero is Tony Stark, played by Robert Downey Jr., a billionaire playboy, kind of the cooler, younger Bruce Wayne. He's the heir to the world's leading defense contractor, Stark Industries. He's a bit of a nerd, but he's supposed to be a sexy nerd. Like, I sort of felt watching this movie that I was actually just privy to one of Elon Musk's daydreams or something. Well, I actually think, more than anything, this is the character that he is trying to play. (laughs) And... Getting back to the old question of, are politics downstream from culture or is it vice versa? I think this poses an interesting question. <laughs> like, this movie's legacy is Elon Musk. Let's just, you know, meditate on that for a little bit, and I'll continue with the plot synopsis. So Tony Stark inherited the business from his father, Howard Stark, who is spoken about as a sort of a Henry Ford or Walt Disney-like figure. You know, a guy who built this company with his own two hands, was a key figure in making the United States into that shining beacon on the hill in its post-war years. He worked on the Manhattan Project, for God's sake. That's how good a man this man is. (laughs) 
<laughs> so Tony owns a majority stake in the company, but he's largely been kept in the dark about its activities by Obadiah Stone, played by Jeff Bridges, who's the manager of the company and was Howard Stark's protege. Tony doesn't worry too much about the ethical side of being in the arms industry, but he can't outrun it forever because there's an early scene in the film, which is my favorite scene in the movie, where he's getting into his limo and he's confronted by a goddamn lady journalist. Yeah, the, the casual sexism of this movie is is astonishing. When after the scene finished, well, and especially when it transitioned to the next scene, I had to wind it back to be like, is this actually happening? So this blonde journalist comes up to the car and says, um, um, excuse me, stupid woman from Vanity Fair. Uh, just a few questions for you. Uh, so, you know, you, you've been called the merchant of death. Uh, a lot of people think you're a war profiteer. What do you say to that? And Tony rattles off the talking points. He says it's an imperfect world, but it's the only one we got. I guarantee you the day weapons are no longer needed to keep the peace, I'll start making bricks and beams for hospitals. And after that, a sort of Socratic dialogue emerges between the two of them. This is the scene that lays out the ethical stakes of the film. He says at one point, my old man had a philosophy. Peace means having a bigger stick than the other guys. She then says, that's a great line coming from a guy selling the sticks. To which he replies, my father helped beat the Nazis and worked on the Manhattan Project. A lot of people, including your professors at Brown, would call that being a hero. You know what this reminds me of? Do you remember that interview with Aaron Sorkin where he said, like, listen, internet girl, it, w- it wouldn't hurt you to get a newspaper subscription. Well, it's yeah, it's, I mean, this is like uh, the Will McAvoy scene at the start of the newsroom. I love the detail where uh, the film establishes that she's been to one of those, you know, lib universities. It's, yeah, it's either Berkeley or brown so just when it seems like tony might be being argued into a corner they fuck it smash cuts to the two of them uh about to have sex and i love this because she's laid out the ethical stakes of the movie she's laid out the things that tony and the viewer know to be true the viewer already understands yeah she's right he probably is a war profiteer there's something that's not on the level about this stark industries and then the movie says don't worry, you don't have to worry at all. She's a phony. She just wants to fuck him. So, you know, all that's true, but you can still like Tony. The final lines in that exchange, she says, a lot of people would call that war profiteering. He says, tell me, do you plan to report on the millions we've saved by advancing medical technology or kept the starvation with our crops? All those breakthroughs, military funding, honey. And then she says, have you ever lost an hour of sleep in your life? And he replies, I'm prepared to lose a few with you. And then it just cuts to a sex scene. It's... One of the weirdest transitions I've ever seen in a movie. The movie is telling us maybe there are some good points being made here, but what you ultimately need to know is that these social justice warriors, (laughs) these do-gooders, they are phonies. They are the moral equivalent of Tony Stark. Nobody really believes anything. So, you know, that gives the viewer permission to get on Tony's side for the rest of the movie as he has to confront all the things that she raised. I was reminded, by the way, of a scene in 1995's Batman Forever. Maybe you've heard of it. There's a plot in the movie where somebody is killed and it's made to look like a suicide. And it's on the premises of Wayne Enterprises. And Bruce Wayne is talking to his secretary and he says something like, I want to make sure his family gets full benefits. And the secretary <laughs> says, but but there was a suicide clause in the contract that, that prohibits him from getting full benefits. And Bruce Wayne says, I know. 
full benefits. <laughs> it's funny that at movies at this level, they're having conversations like this. Clearly, they're having the ideological conversations where they're like, well, the audience isn't going to like that he's a billionaire. So we have to include something to make it clear that he's one of the good billionaires. But obviously, the world had changed enough between 1995 and 2008 that essentially the entire movie becomes about justifying him as the good billionaire. Batman Forever kind of got it done in one line, and then the rest of it, it was just sort of unspoken. It was just sort of assumed. The rest of this movie is about the education of this man. Right, and I want to come back to that, because the arc that he supposedly has in this film, I mean, I don't even think really, really works as an arc. Uh, We'll we'll come Uh back to that. But one thing that I think is really interesting is, you know, there's all these scenes in Afghanistan, right from the very first scene in the movie where he's driving with the convoy. I don't think the film ever names Afghanistan, or at least does not in the first kind of, you know, half of itself. Afghanistan uh, in the movie functions as just kind of an unnamed foreign country. It's just the frontier. And uh, it's a place where the United States is for for some reason. There's some kind of vague civilizing mission that's kind of ambiently there, but it's never really specified or explained. The film feels absolutely no compulsion to justify or, yeah, even explain any of this. There's even one incredible detail after uh, Robert Downey Jr. gets captured uh, that his kidnappers uh, speak all these different languages. They speak Russian. They speak, I think, Hungarian is named for some reason. They speak Arabic. And again, you know, you want to talk about pure ideology. I mean, it's like, is this Afghanistan? Well, yeah, clearly. I mean, the film was made in 2008. But I think in the universe of the movie, it's much more quite explicitly just this stand in for kind of, you know, insert generic threat to the United States here. You know, it's it's a threat that kind of sounds like it could be from the Cold War, but it's also the war on terror as well. The people that capture Tony Stark are just this catch-all collection of kind of sinister foreigners who must be defended against. It's not really even clear what their motives are. And, and I think that's really incredible. And it speaks to the fact that the real villain in, the, in this movie is actually the Jeff Bridges character. Because whatever conflict the U.S. military is involved in on the frontier is ultimately secondary in importance for the movie to Tony Stark's kind of supposed arc and the, and the goings-on in the United States and, you know, uh, what principles are going to guide the military-industrial complex in the foreign interventions that it's entangled in, which, again, the film feels no uh, need to kind of justify, explain, or even really offer any context for. They're just there. It's an imperfect world, but it's the only one we've got. I guarantee you the day weapons are no longer needed to keep the peace, I'll start making bricks and beans for baby hospitals. You rehearse that much? Every night in front of the mirror before bedtime. I can see that. I'd like to show you firsthand. All I want is a serious answer. Okay, you're serious. My old man had a philosophy. Peace means having a bigger stick than the other guy. That's a great line coming from the guy selling the sticks. My father helped defeat the Nazis. He worked on the Manhattan Project. A lot of people, including your professors at Brown, would call that being a hero. And a lot of people would also call that war profiteering. Tell me, do you plan to report on the millions we've saved by advancing medical technology or kept from starvation with our IntelliCrops? All those breakthroughs, military funding, honey. So Tony does find himself in Afghanistan. He was doing a big demonstration of some of Stark Industries' new weapons, kidnapped by this terrorist group, taken to some cave somewhere, and forced to use his technology to create a sort of super weapon 
And he's working with this captured Afghani doctor, a man named Yinsen, who's the most humanized character in Afghanistan. He's the one who tells Tony, look at this, Tony. Uh, This is your legacy. Look at all these weapons that these terrorists have. These are weapons that your country, your company brought into Afghanistan. So that gives Tony pause. That makes him realize maybe that dumb lady journalist character might have been right. Anyway, secretly, he uses all this time building this super weapon to build an Iron Man suit. Uh, I'm not going to get into technical stuff about the fact that he's got a mechanical heart and all this stuff. And, you know, it doesn't matter. You've seen it. What matters is that he makes a suit and he kills all the terrorists. He returns to America a hero, but he's a hero with a guilty conscience. So he holds a press conference where he says, you know what, Stark Industries is closing down its weapons arm. And why does he have a guilty conscience? It's because he finds out that weapons made by his company have fallen into the hands of the wrong people and they're being used against civilians, folks, which of course, as we know, would never have happened uh, unless <laughs> unless they'd fallen, fallen into the arms of, of, the, of the baddies over there. And again, I think this speaks to the ideology of the film because the real problem isn't the manufacture of the weapons. The problem problem is just the weapons being in the wrong hands. This also speaks to the motivations of the Jeff Bridges character, who, as I said, is I think the real villain of the film, because it turns out that he's kind of been double dealing. Like, as Tony Stark has been off living his playboy life, he's been, you know, effectively running the company, and he's been selling the weapons, both to the U.S. military and to these kind of unnamed, unspecified catch-all terrorists. And that's why this movie is a liberal movie and not a conservative movie, because the villain is ultimately Jeff Bridges. Right, I mean, the message here is that there's two kinds of military industrial complex and it's important that we have the good one in the bad one you know uh jeff bridges is just he's just a rich guy who's driven by the imperatives of capital okay like he just want he just wants to make money so he'll sell weapons to everyone tony stark learns to be the good kind of sort of private warlord by learning that you know you can't let your allegiance to capital override your allegiance to the flag of the united states and the republic for which it stands you know it's funny back when this stuff was just for kids it was one thing like when it was just for kids batman was a rich guy who wore the costume and he drove his batmobile to a bank and the the riddler or someone had two bags with dollar signs on them and <laughs> and he threw his net around them and he dropped them off in front of police headquarters and and the kids were happy but then you know when when you start making it for adults when you when you start saying well it's actually more complex then you actually have to think about okay well why would somebody do this how did the the characters get this? this way and you know uh it's it's kind of hard to do that in a way that's not ultimately reactionary i mean when tim burton was doing it it was well well batman's uh, lonely and he's a psychopath that's why he's doing it and also because the city has become so corrupt that we need a vigilante in there to sweep it up that that was like the twin thesis of the tim burton batman movie But, you know, the zeitgeist has changed since 1989, and in 2008, it's the height of the war on terror, and it's like, well, why would somebody do it in 2008? Well, it's because of these reasons. Like I said, I didn't see Iron Man when it came out, and so it hadn't occurred to me until I finally watched it that he's kind of different from other uh, superheroes in that his superpower isn't something kind of supernatural. Superman is literally an alien, right? 
He's not the victim of some kind of like science experiment gone wrong that's like, I don't know, what even happens to Spider-Man? Is that what allows Spider-Man to shoot webbing out of his hands? I believe he gets bit by a radioactive spider, does he not? Sure, why not? But the point is that Iron Man's superpower is just American exceptionalism, right? <laughs> like that's his superpower. He's just a regular guy in a suit. <laughs> it's like his superpower is that he's the scion of wealth and a literal child of the military industrial complex. And his father has passed down the ancient wisdom required to build one of the world's most powerful super weapons in a cave with limited equipment. Like the, the superpower is just that he's a one man walking Lockheed Martin. Today I am joined by researchers who invent some of the most advanced metals on the planet. Designers who are modeling prototypes in the digital cloud. Folks from the Pentagon who help to support their work. Uh, Basically, I'm here to announce that we're building Iron Man. If I can just skip to the last scene of this movie, uh, listen, folks, Jeff Bridges gets defeated, and that's all there is to it. Iron Man calls in the help of his Air Force friend, played by Terrence Howard, and the combined forces of the military and the private sector are able to stop Jeff Bridges. Uh, <laughs> yeah, they stop Jeff Bridges with a public-private partnership. <laughs> <laughs> It, it ends with Tony Stark about to deliver a press conference, and one of Tony's handlers says to him, now remember, stick to the script. You've got a statement, don't veer from the script. And that's what I know. This guy is not going to stick to the script. This is not a man. This is not a man who sticks to the script. He's, he's a little out there. So he gets up in front of the audience and he says, um, you may have heard that there was an Iron Man up in the sky. Well, that wasn't me. Uh, uh, it was a military test. And the, the press is very skeptical. And he ends the movie by saying, you know what? I am Iron Man. Boom. Credits. <laughs> and then the rest of the franchise, as people know, depict Tony Stark as quite comfortably living as Iron Man in the world. Half his life, he's a big R&D mogul. The other half his life, he's an out and proud superhero. Which is not the same as uh, what Bruce Wayne did. You know, Bruce Wayne was a rich guy and Batman was a, I guess, paralegal or perhaps deputized in some way officer of the law. But there was a pretense that if his identity was revealed, that would cause the whole thing to crumble because he did what had to be done under the counter. Whereas this movie, the the whole Iron Man franchise is proposing that actually this law enforcement just needs to be outsourced to this Elon Musk figure who can do it out in the, he can be given special privileges just out in the open because he's Atlas with the world on his back or something like that. Now we very much frame this movie as a kind of, you know, war on terror, military industrial complex propaganda. And I want to emphasize here that that's not just us being facetious. The Pentagon quite literally consulted on this movie. The Department of Defense consulted on this movie. Reading from The Guardian, according to research compiled by Tom Secker, a journalist specializing in the relationship between government institutions and the movie industry, Marvel agreed to allow the Pentagon to review and revise the script of Iron Man before its release in return for access to an Air Force base, an F-22 Raptor fighter jet, and other equipment. The script revision included removing a scene in which Iron Man was shot down by the Air 
Force and a line that jokingly referred to military suicide. So I went and I found Tom Secker's research, and one of the things he includes is this video that I guess was made by the Department of Defense, in which you see several officials, including one uh, who has the title Air Force Entertainment Liaison Project Officer. Uh, he's a he's a captain. That, that's the job it, I want, by the way, and I'm kind of <laughs> hoping this podcast might shoot me to the next level. <laughs> <laughs> so this guy's a this guy's a captain in uh, in the U.S. Air Force, and he and various other people in this video just kind of effusively detail all of the hardware used in the film and how excited they are about the collaboration. It was amazing when we showed up at Edwards for that scene of Rhodey arriving. The amount of gear that the DoD had put on that flight line was mind-boggling. As you can see, a lot of great production value. Some of the the finest air power we have in the arsenal. B-2 bombers, C-17s, and F-22s, and F-35s. I mean, you could literally pause the screen and tally it up, and it would probably come out to a billion and a half dollars. This kind of collaboration is not uncommon. I think there was a similar collaboration on Iron Man 2. There's a book I haven't had a chance to read by the writer Roger Stahl called Militainment Inc. War Media and Popular Culture that dives deeply into this relationship. But Iron Man, I think, is, was the first of many films in the MCU to have a direct relationship uh, of some kind with the United States military. So Captain Marvel, for example, featured in uh, USAF uh, recruitment campaign. I haven't seen WandaVision, but there was some commentary uh, last year that various things about WandaVision and kind of the way certain institutions were framed and depicted was born of this kind of, shall we say, collaboration between uh, Marvel and the military. So when we say that this is a propaganda movie, I think we mean that in, a, in an extremely literal sense. A line in Captain Marvel that is repeated several times, it's like one of the key lines of the movie is Brie Larson saying uh, words to the effect of, we joined the military not to start conflicts, but to end them. By the way, just while I'm reminiscing about classic Marvel movies, one of the many of them that I didn't like was Captain America, The Winter Soldier. And, you know, it's it's been about 10 years since I've seen this movie, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be a little vague on some of the plot details. But the plot involved, you've got this surveillance program. It might be a drone program. Uh, and I think it I think it kills people. And Robert Redford is the government guy who handles it. That's what you need to know. Now, Robert Redford's a bad guy. He's he's a bad government guy. And, you know, he can be either Bush or Obama, depending on where your sympathies lie. Depending on which of the two available identities you happen to possess. <laughs> Democrat, Republican. Take your pick, folks. Now, again, it's been 10 years since I've seen this movie, but Nick Fury, the leader of the Avengers, played by Samuel L. Jackson, he gets framed for some sort of crime in this movie. Listeners, write in and tell me what it was that he was framed for. Uh, but he gets smeared, and he has to go on the run. And somebody says to Captain America, do you think Nick Fury did this? And Captain America says, if you knew Nick Fury, you would know he wouldn't do this. Now, you know, the film goes on. Uh, Robert Redford is defeated. This extra-legal, very invasive drone surveillance murder weapon thing that Redford was going to use to kill two million people is destabilized. And then it ends with Scarlett Johansson as Black Widow, I think, testifying before Congress. And she says words to the effect of, you may not like us, but you need us, and, and we're the only ones who can do the job. So the movie comes down on the line of, listen, extra-legal, shadowy surveillance organizations are always going to be a fact of life. You gotta have them. You have to have unaccountable, military-like forces that structure our society. Uh, but don't worry, Nick Fury would never do that. <laughs> Nick Fury would never do that. 
Captain Marvel has this rich human past, the core of her is the Air Force. welcoming and amazing. It was important for Brie to go up in the F-16 and discover who Carol Danvers is. It's gonna be fun! It's a great honor for the men and women of the 57th Wing to be able to share this thing that is the Air Force. It's so cool. <laughs> Of her, that sense of humor mixed with total capability and whatever challenge comes her way is really what Air Force pilots are like. You know how to fly this thing? Yes. 